Got a seat, church. By the way, uh, if you're new and you're visiting, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Sam, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, such an honor to open the word with you this morning. We're teaching through the book of Daniel, and that's kind of what we do here. We teach God's word. So we're going to cover chapter two. Before we get there, I want to I get a running start. You know, we live in a lost world. We live in a lost world. And I don't mean like the second Jurassic Park movie that wasn't quite as good as the first one. <laughs> you know, second ones, they always, they're never as good as the first one. We live in a lost world. Um, and our text is really about lost people. And so I think this morning we're going to spend time thinking together about how God's word frames those who are lost and how we are to think about those who are lost. You know, sometimes we don't always know how to refer to people that aren't Christians. Sometimes we call them non-Christians. Sometimes we, we call them, you know, um, unconverted or whatever. I think the appropriate term is lost. There is a lot of lost people in this world and in our community and in our country. And fortunately, we have a God who has come to find lost people. Jesus spent most of his time interfacing with lost people. Not just people that were lost, but people that were willing to admit they were lost, right? I want to give us a running start on our text. I want to just quickly sort of um, start to develop three ideas that I think you're going to see clearly in this text as we work through it. So let me give them each to you. The first idea I want you, if you write this down, that's helpful, uh, is that the gospel uh, is, a, is way more threatening to someone who does not yet believe it, then you probably remember. Okay, let me say that again. The gospel is way more threatening to someone who does not yet believe it than you probably remember. And I say remember because at one point you didn't believe it. And sometimes it's easy to forget what it was like when the good news wasn't good news or didn't seem like good news to you. Uh, it's important that you understand that. It's key to our text. Let me explain something quickly here. The biblical paradigm of the world, the, the Bible explains the world this way. Uh, it, it doesn't explain it as, as thousands of different ways to live and thousands of different people and thousands of different kinds of people. It actually makes it very simple. It sums the entirety of God's creation into a two-party system. Not Republican and Democrat. Not conservative and liberal. A two-party system, meaning that we exist in a world that is, consists of two systems. Two worlds is the biblical language. This world, God's world, heaven, earth. Two systems, two uh, kingdoms, different kings, different population. Everything fits into these two Systems. Either you belong to God's world and you, you belong to his kingdom or you belong to this world and you belong to this kingdom. And to those who have not yet pledged allegiance to God's kingdom, the gospel is actually terrifying. And that's what we're going to see in our text. Let me, let me read you something Jesus said. This is some, some less fridge magnet, not, not so much fridge magnet Bible here, which are my favorite verses. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 57, they were going along the road and some said to them, or some said to him, now this is, this is great. This is what every evangelist and every preacher and every leader is hoping for, right? Followers, who's gonna, who's gonna say yes? And so Jesus has people and, and they wanna follow him. Great, you'd think Jesus would be like, awesome, sign here, let's go. Here's what Jesus says. They were coming along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And he says, oh, you think so? He says, okay, well, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Jesus speak for, I'm homeless. You want to come? Okay. And then Luke, Luke groups another, uh, another encounter where someone wants to follow him. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. Now here's Jesus engaging someone to follow him. And the person said, uh, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now that seems reasonable, right? But what he's really saying is, hey, let me go make sure that I can ensure that I get my father's inheritance. What do you think Jesus thinks about that? Famous line, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead. Leave the worldly to deal with the worldly things. 
Let the people that are enraptured and invested in the system of this world to deal with the things of this world. In other words, if you want to follow me, you don't worry about your father's inheritance. You have a different father's inheritance. He had another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, that seems reasonable. Is Jesus anti-family? Well, no, but he also said that if you follow me, you're probably going to be hated by your family. That I'm going to divide your family if your family belongs to two different systems. He says, I came to bring division. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to save the lost, but he also came to make clear the division between the two worlds, the two systems, the two kingdoms, the two kings, the prince of the power of the air and the ruler and the creator of all things. And Jesus, he, he doesn't let people sit on the fence. He, he pushes them into the uncomfortable place where they have to decide. It's, it's this critical place of, of, of crisis in your life where you're like, I have to go one of two ways. Jesus doesn't let people get away with this. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Can't plow while you're looking backwards. Remember Lot's wife, right? She looked back. So Jesus leaves no margin for hedging your bets. Jesus doesn't allow us to diversify our investments. He doesn't let us go, yeah, kingdom, sounds good. Jesus, king, church, Christianity, gospel, sure, that's cool. Let me just kind of put 30% of myself into it and save, you know, let me diversify my portfolio so that in case something doesn't work out, I still have one foot in this world. He doesn't allow that. That's not the call to discipleship. That's not because it's not consistent with reality. It's not consistent with reality. He says you need to relinquish your tenure in this world. You need to divest yourself completely from this world's system. Let me give another one. Luke 17, Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life, a.k.a. his investments in this world, will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. You're familiar with that. But he goes on. He goes on to give a very kind of terrifying image. He says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. What's the implication? This is, this is probably a, a couple. One person taken. Taken what? Taken where? Taken to another end eternally is the idea. There will be two women grinding together, making flour or, or food, and one will be taken and the other left. So all of humanity is going to be split at one point, like fish in a net, like wheat and tares, like sheep and goats. This is the reality of what's happening in our world. There is a great division that is both happening and is coming. And then I, I'm sorry if this is scary, but it's Bible to the kiddos in the room. But he said to them, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Here's the reality. The full realization of God's kingdom, the thing we're waiting for, means a complete elimination of all sin and all evil and all the systems of this world. And that's really good news if you're on the right side of that, right? That's really good news if, if you are on the team that's gonna win. But here's what I want you to remember. Remember my point? The gospel's way more threatening than you remember if you're not yet in that coming kingdom, that's bad news for you, right? And that's why Jesus was so offensive. He was offensive because he threatened the investments of those who were over-invested in this world. And who were the most invested? The religious elite? They had, a lot of, they had a lot of dogs in the race, right? The rich, the Sadducees, the people that were making money hand over fist in the temple, they were invested in this kingdom of this world. Jesus pushed on that, and so they killed him. So Jesus is threatening to those that have not yet disenfranchised themselves to this world. And let me tell you what Revelation 11:5 says. It says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That means that the book of Revelation teaches us that these two systems right now that are operating in an overlap, at one point, will merge and one will give way to the other and one will completely consume the other. God's kingdom will fully be realized on this earth and, he will, and his rule will be complete. No more sin, no more evil. That's good news for those of us that are team Jesus. But for those of us 
that are team this world, this life. That's threatening. It's terrifying. Why am I saying all this? This matters to our text this morning because Nebuchadnezzar was heavily invested in this world. You're saying, who's Nebuchadnezzar? He was the, the king of Babylon. Babylon, as we'll learn, and as we've been learning, was one of the most powerful and affluent empires in human history. 600 BC, 600 years before Christ, they marched on Israel. They took over most of the ancient world. And King Nebuchadnezzar, a young man in his 30s, was on top of the world. All of his investments were in this world. But then he has this dream. We're gonna learn about the dream next week. He has this dream in which he sees a statue. And I think he knows intuitively that the statue represents him and his empire. And he hasn't put his finger on that yet. We'll see in our text. He has this dream about this statue. And this statue represents the sum total of the human empires that are and will come. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And what happens to the statue is terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar. Because this stone, unhewn by human hands, comes out of nowhere and obliterates the statue. And then replaces it with a mountain. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know exactly what that means, but he knows he needs to watch out. Because he knows whatever that stone is, it's going to take out his franchise in this world. And it's terrifying to him. So the first thing I just want you to remember, keep in mind, is that the gospel is way more threatening to someone who does not yet believe it than you probably remember. The second thing I want you to remember is that the lost are far more aware of their lostness than you probably realize. The lost are far more aware of their lostness than you probably realize. I don't know if lostness is a word, but it is now. Uh, our fear and our desire for control and our chronic anxiety and our billion-dollar commercial industry all proves that we know we've missed the mark somewhere along the way, okay? And we're going to get into that. Sin, by the way, sin means missing the mark. It, it, it's like that feeling when, when you're trying to weed eat with an electric weed eater, which is the worst, right? And you got this crazy, you know, extension cord that you're trying, and you, and, and you, you, you go into the house, and you plug in the extension cord, and you run it out, and you're like, oh, I'm like two feet short. Or the other day I was fixing some sprinklers and I broke a sprinkler head for like the third time and I went to Grover's and I bought the part and it took me forever and I had to drive all the way into town. I came back out and, I, and the part was like two centimeters too short, my pipe. I, I missed the mark, okay? Missed the mark. Now those are trivial, silly examples. But that's what sin is. Sin is when we've missed the mark. Sin is when we have not really realized what we know we were meant to realize, and what I think is at the subconscious of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he's going to have here is he knows, he's, in some way, he knows he's missed the mark. And as we'll see, he reminds us of the world because the world, people that are lost in the world, they know subconsciously that something's missing. If something wasn't missing, they would stop buying stuff on Amazon Prime. They would stop listening to political people that tell them they can fix the world. They would stop doing anything because they would, they, would stop re they would stop trying to reach for something. The world knows they're lost. Now, here's the third thing. The world is far less capable of answering people's deepest questions than you probably assume. That's the third, third thing I want you to notice. The world doesn't really have satisfactory answers. Okay, now keeping all that in mind, let's dive into the text. Those are, those are all things that you're going to see emerge in this narrative as we go on. A little bit of background, uh, you guys already know this if you've been here the last few weeks, Israel was taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, Babylon essentially took over the Assyrian Empire, making it sort of the chief dictator of the land, and they took over Israel along with a lot of nations, and they pulled the best people out of all the nations and enrolled them in what I'm calling Nebuchadnezzar School or Babylon School. It was a three-year program to try to bring up a cabinet that could be uh, the, the government officials for King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel and his three friends, they get swept up into this school. And last week, we learned about how Daniel and his three friends took a stand for, ultimately, for, for holiness within this school. And because of that, we learned that God gave Daniel supernatural insight and wisdom into dreams, he gave him a particular ability to have transcendent wisdom, and that set the table for this chapter here in chapter 2. So let's dive right in. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now keep in mind, this is not a worshiper of Yahweh. This is a, a Gentile 
who knows nothing about the Israel God, the God of the covenant of Israel. He's a polytheist. He worships multiple gods, and, and he uses sort of a manipulative worship system to try to elicit what he wants from the gods when he wants it. And I guarantee you, he has a lot, a very high view of himself. And his sleep is interrupted. He's having a hard time. He's not resting well because he keeps having this reoccurring dream. And in this dream, as I already told you, he sees this statue that becomes obliterated by this stone. And he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what to think about it. Now, a little bit of backstory on Nebuchadnezzar. He rose to power very quickly. And you know what powerful people really think about the most? How to not lose their power. You know what people with a lot of money think about? How to not lose their money. You know what people with a lot of influence think about? How to not lose their influence, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar, he, what's keeping him up at night? He's having a dream that's kind of making it look like he's going to lose his influence. He's kind of bumping up against this reality that maybe I'm not who I thought I was. And then he certainly had no shortage of enemies, history will tell us. He had plenty of people that wanted to knock him off the throne. He had plenty of threats. He had plenty of dissenters, even within his own ranks. So power is hard to keep. It's keeping him up at night. He's trying to be God, and he's in a restless state because uh, we know that at some point in our inside, in our subconscious, we know we're a phony, right? Don't we? Some people call it imposter syndrome. We're projecting one thing about ourselves, but deep down we know we're really not that, and we're wondering when the time is going to come when we're exposed and people realize that we're really not what we pretended to be. I think Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with some imposter syndrome here. He knows he's not really as powerful as he projects himself to be, and this dream is pushing on that. You know, by the way, God is really good at making lost people feel the uncomfortableness of their lostness, isn't he? He's very good at that. I'm very thankful for that. Man, I don't think I ever slept good before I followed Jesus. I just remember laying in bed being so tormented and terrified by the reality that I knew I was going to hell and I knew that I didn't want to follow Jesus enough to receive the grace that he had for me. I never slept well. Verse two, then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Let me break down this group a little bit. This is, he, he lists four different people. Uh, the Hebrew word for magicians here would have been considered the scholars who could supposedly divine the future by using various means. It's actually the same used word, Hebrew word used to describe the Egyptian magicians that Moses interfaced with. Enchanters, the Hebrew word there means they communicated with the dead. So like necromancers. That's the right word, necromancy. They, they, the sorcerers were those who could, could cast spells. Now, these people are clearly tapping into the demonic realm here. You know, there's power in the demonic realm. This whole idea about there's two systems, there's two worlds, there's, there's power in the other side. Believe it, you know? Chaldeans, these were the astrologers uh, that, that looked and studied the stars to try to determine the future. So we have this mixture of, of people, probably from multiple different cultures, maybe some from Assyria, maybe some from, um, uh, from Egypt, from all over the world, that have brought together this great library and college, this college of, of thought around magic and divination and, and all of this stuff. And you notice all of it comes around predicting the future. Why, why are we so obsessed as humans about predicting the future? It comes down to control. Like, why do, why do people pay someone to fortune tell for them? It comes down to control. I want to know what my outcome is going to be so I can try to change it. And so at the, at the very base of this, what it is, is Nebuchadnezzar has accumulated for himself all of these people that are going to try to help him control his life, control his power, control his influence. But here's the problem. None of them can do it. Okay, dream interpretation and divination, it was a huge thing in, in that culture. Um, verse three, the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So he brings all these guys into a room. He says, I got this dream. I don't know what to do about it. Verse four, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Now, little Bible nerd note here, the, the language that this is written in actually transitions at this point from Hebrew to Aramaic, which is very interesting. Uh, as far as I know, it's actually the only book in the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic. And it doesn't go back to Hebrew until chapter seven. 
Aramaic was the common language of the day. It was particularly the language used in the courts and among the officials. And so scholars kind of debate, why is this written in, in Aramaic? Now, I think the reason is God wanted to make sure that his word was accessible to the Gentiles. Because this, this section that we're going to read until chapter 7 really pertains to the Gentiles. So study that more on your own. Verse 4, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. They're buttering him up a little bit like you do. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. This is how it works. This is the way that these guys work. Hey, you tell us the dream, and we'll come up with some phony interpretation. Right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's not a chump. He knows these guys. He knows they're so full of it that their eyes are brown. Is that inappropriate? He knows it, right? Shouldn't say, I just shouldn't say things that pop into my head. Everyone here with brown eyes is like, oh, seriously? I'm offended. Finding a new church. Church where they accept brown-eyed people. Okay, moving on. He, he knows. He knows these guys are full of it. He knows. There's something. He's, he, 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 he's so sure that they're either going to try to trick him or that they actually don't have the power they're claiming to have that he creates a very sticky stipulation for them. He says, either you're going to tell me what the dream is or you're going to die. Limb from limb, I'm going to level your houses. Nebuchadnezzar is a scary dude. You think he's joking? These guys know he's serious. So he calls their bluff. And this kind of, this to me adds such an intrigue to the narrative. Does Nebuchadnezzar know that these guys are phonies? I think he does. I think he's already postured for, for some real answers to come into his life. So the king answered to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb, verse 5, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. We will show its interpretation. They're like, no, you don't understand. That's not how it works. You have to tell us the dream. And then we'll guess what it means. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. So clearly the king is skeptical with these guys. He has a distrust for them. And just a little side note here, it kind of reminds me of our generation. You know, we are one of the most untrusting generations when it comes to any kind of authority or institutions, like in history. I mean, we are so skeptical, and rightly so. Rightly so. We've been lied to so many times by politicians and people that say they got all the answers. We've been lied to by religious hypocrites so many times. We've been lied to by spiritual people telling us that they have spiritual insight. We are so skeptical. And some Christians think that that's actually putting us at a deficit when it comes to sharing the gospel. Let me assure you it's not. Because we're not peddling institutions. We're not peddling authority that comes from ourselves. We're giving people the pure, unadulterated truth of God written in the word of God that has complete authority. I don't need to convince someone to trust the institution of the church. I don't need to run on the credibility of some person who has a lot of power and Christian influence and Christian culture. I don't need to turn to that. The scripture has the authority that we need. Isn't that good? I mean, isn't that cool? We, 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 we don't have to be like, oh, people are skeptical of authority. They're skeptical of humans. But God's word is credible. So this is not bad news for us. By the way, also, Nebuchadnezzar is like us in that he literally has all of the truth and all, all truth and wisdom and insight and intellectual works and academic resources of the whole world at his fingertips. At the time that this was written, he was the only guy in the world that had all that. You know, information is cheap nowadays. I was typing this sermon yesterday. I have this little button on my computer. It's the Siri button. Hey, Siri. Oh, she's listening. <laughs> it's just an illustration. 
You know, what, who, who, what's, what's the square root of whatever? I mean, what, what, what's, you know, how, how, many, how many grams of protein should I have today? You know, what, how, what's the population right now? How many people live in Grants Pass? And information is just there. And so we're really like Nebuchadnezzar here. We have all this information at our fingertips. Anything we could possibly want to read or have access to, it's there. Yet we don't have any answers in our culture, do we? Kind of reminds you of Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? He's got it all. He's got all, all, everything he could possibly hope for. Yet he knows he's no closer to the truth than anybody else. Because he knows these guys claim to be a divination or a directive or a connection between transcendence, but he knows they're really not. So he's calling their bluff. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, now note this, this is so cool. This is what I, I would call an unintended uh, profundency. It's, this is, this, these guys are going to say something so profound and they don't even realize what they're going to say. The Chaldeans respond to the king and say, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Is that true? It's true here. 600 years later, it wouldn't be true anymore. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. In other words, you're asking more of us than anyone can do. And then verse 11, the gospel is baked into this. This is so cool. The thing that the king asks is difficult, they say. And no one can show it to the king except who? The gods who, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, you're asking us to do something that's beyond our jurisdiction. You're asking us to do something that's transcendent. We, we can't do that. Only the gods can do that. And only if the gods were here communicating God-level truth to us could we understand these things. Here's the thing. Most human beings in our world particularly in our culture, they're searching for answers and they're searching within the dome of our own limited understanding. They're looking in the sciences. They're looking at what can be proven um, with, with research or scientific research or be measured. But what these guys are putting their finger on is the only way you can know this kind of knowledge is if something comes in from outside of this creation. People tell me all the time when I'm sharing the gospel with them, they say, how can I believe the Bible that was written by man? How can I believe Christianity? It's just another thing written by a person. And I say, okay, here's the thing. The only way you can trust the truth of the gospel that I'm saying is if it was written by the person that had all knowledge, if it was communicated by the person that came from outside of the limitations of our own human knowledge, and communicated that truth. Let me give you an example, a terrible example. Okay, I'm gonna call it the, uh, I wrote it down, what is it? It's the, the Inca and the iPad. Okay, let's say you, you could somehow transport an iPad to the Incas uh, hundreds of years ago, before there was anything like that. And they see this thing, this glowing thing, and they push the button, they're oh, and Sirius communicating with them, and they're freaking out. What is this? Stop it, I'm not talking to you. I told you, she thinks... <laughs> Okay, and, and, and now these guys, they're not going to have a clue what this thing is, right? What is this flat? It's probably a god. They probably worship it. They probably set a little plate of food, right, up to this iPad. And you'd do the same thing if you lived then. So would I. Okay, it, you know, because you don't have any knowledge as to what this thing is. So what would they do with it? Either they'd worship it or maybe they'd do something really silly like turn it into like a dustpan or something. Or maybe they maybe they'd put a plant on it, you know? I mean, what's the purpose of it? We don't know. What do they need? They need transcendent knowledge to be transported back in time into their place to explain to them what the heck this thing is. They need the designer to come in and say, this is called an iPad. Here's how you use it. Here's what it was for. The problem is, is that humans look for answers on the horizontal rather than in the vertical. We're looking around at what is measurable, at what we see, at what we've experienced, at what we feel to try to find transcend, transcendent reality. But the gospel is, is that God is transcendent reality and he brought it into this world. How? He came himself. I'm making the babies cry. I need to calm down. Um, he brought it himself. He brought it himself. He literally, God himself became 
part of his creation. He became man, fully God, truly man, in order to communicate the transcendent through a language we could understand, which is humanity. You know, story is the most easy and accessible and universal language for humans to understand. Why? Because it's a human learning from the life of another human. So the ultimate way God communicated himself to us was through himself, becoming a person and walking among us. It's called the incarnation. It's called Emmanuel, God with us. So listen to what these guys say. They say, no one can reveal this to you unless the gods come down to flesh. They didn't realize that they were predicting the gospel, that God would become human flesh, the logos, and that we can know the truth because the truth has come and the truth has walked among us and the truth has spoken. And what Peter said is we want you to feel what we felt. We want you to experience what we've experienced. We put our hands in his hands and he resurrected to back up his truth claim. He rose from the dead and ascended. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He made the iPad, okay? He made the iPad. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. When we study Jesus, we learn the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is good news. So you can waste your entire life interacting with so-called mediators that are gonna promise you transcendent reality, but we know better, don't we? Christ alone is the one that can bring ultimate truth to us. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And that includes Daniel and his class. I think there was more going on here, by the way. I think, I think, I think Nebuchadnezzar was ready to scrub this program anyways. You know, he was ready to just wash the whole thing and Daniel was just kind of unfortunately a victim of that. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel, listen, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, two key words, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. This is the first Daniel's heard of it, right? And Daniel went in immediately, and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel responds to this chaotic, life-threatening situation in a, in, with two key attributes. First, carefulness, and second, confidence. He responds with carefulness, prudence, and discretion, it says. He doesn't freak out. He does what a good leader does. What does a good leader do? A good leader doesn't match the intensity of the room. A good leader brings down the intensity of the room. A good leader thinks clearly and he walks in and he changes the trajectory of where things are going. He doesn't send angry, hateful tweets to people, right? He doesn't go crazy and go nuclear and freak out when somebody calls him a name, okay? A good leader goes, hmm, let's carefully, prudently, cautiously, with wisdom, let's, let's assess the situation. And what does Daniel's core tell him? What does Daniel's deepest conviction tell him? God can fix this. God can fix this. So, th so the second thing is he has confidence. Daniel already knew what he needed to do because he already knew who to go to. How does Daniel know, by the way? He's probably 18 years old now. How does he know God can do this? Well, he read his Bible. You know the story of Joseph? You read that story? God did the same thing for Joseph. He read the story of David and Goliath where, where all of the Israelites were cowering in fear of this, this big giant and David, this young Jewish boy like Daniel, walks up and he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? How come no one is calling this guy out? Our God can take this guy out. Are you kidding me? I mean, da Daniel's, he's, he knows these stories. He's like, God can do this. God can totally do this. He has confidence. He, he has faith. He doesn't have faith in his own faith. He has faith in God and God's character, and what God can do, right? And so this is our job as Christians, by the way. Our job is to keep our head in crazy moments, not like we ever have those in our culture, to keep our head, to not freak out, to walk with prudence and discretion, and to introduce the God factor into every situation. That's what Daniel does. That's all I do as a pastor. 
I don't, I, I'm not an expert. I don't have, you know, I, I don't have all of the knowledge to fix people's problems. I'm just like, hey, have you thought about the Lord yet in this situation? Let's introduce him into the situation. That's what we do. That's what Daniel does here. That's our job. Verse 17, and Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. That's, you may know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from God of heaven and concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel doesn't go to his knees alone. He invites the covenant community of God into this beautiful privilege of praying together corporately that God would spare them and that God would show mercy and favor. He prays that God would spare them. He prays that God would spare the pagans, and he prays that God would speak to the pagans. All three things. He prays that God would reveal truth to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't pray meteor shower down on Nebuchadnezzar. He prays that God would speak to him through Daniel. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So Daniel gets the same exact vision, and we're gonna learn about that vision next week. Don't miss it. Um, He has the same exact vision in his dream. And Daniel answered and said, blessed. Now, this is what we read before we started. This is Daniel's praise, prayer of praise to God for revealing it. So consequentially, bless you. It's a very good synopsis of the entire book. It says, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the, the, the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. What do you think? Did Daniel think he got the interpretation? No. And he, he makes sure to make sure to make sure that everybody knows where this wisdom came from. It's God's wisdom. He changes times and seasons. This is the whole book summarized, really. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, to, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So don't stop at petition. Let petition fully bloom into praise. He doesn't just ask God. He remembers to turn around like the leper and thank God. Thank you, Lord. And I have a feeling Daniel would have praised God whether or not God came through with this or not. Okay? He praises God for it. Verse 24, let's just finish it out. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, notice he's gonna take credit for this, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, I love this, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Daniel wants to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows who's not answering his question, just in case he forgot. Let's make this clear. I'm coming from a different category. This is a totally different God. I'm not just one of, your, one of, one of your, your deceiving magicians or sorcerers or astrologers. I'm coming from a totally different, this is a different God. He wants to make that clear. No wise man, enchanter, magician, astrologer can show the king the mystery the king has asked. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in their latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. We're going to stop there. And we'll look at the vision next week and its interpretation. Let me just end with three things to keep in mind regarding lost people. Three things to keep in mind from this text. If you want to write them down, you can. The first is this. This is important. The gospel is the answer that people are actually looking for. They just don't know it yet. That, if you can get 
that into your head when it comes to evangelism. It changes everything. If you think you're trying to convince somebody to do something they really don't want to do, then you're going to do stupid things like try to make Christianity sound easier than it is. Or you're going to change the nature of the gospel and try to sell it like some kind of an essential oil or something. Not that there's anything wrong with those. They're great. But you're going you're to try to sell it. You're going to try to work it. You're going to like, hey, let me tell you why the gospel is really great. You need to start from the perspective that the gospel actually is what they want. They just don't know it. Nebuchadnezzar, he's not sleeping well because he wants a couple things. And he's afraid he's not going to get them. What does he want? Well, first of all, he wants utopia. Stitched within every human being is a, something that's been called the utopian vision. It is that within us, we know that we need to be either be part of or create a society that is perfect. Romans tried to do it. Babylonians tried to do it. Persians tried to do it. Maybe if we get enough power and enough control and enough government, <laughs> we can fix everything. You know, maybe we can make a society that's perfect. Everyone wants the utopian vision. Everyone's chasing it. You know, uh, liberalism and progressivism and conservatism, they're all promising a utopian vision. Hey, if we just get the right policies, if we just get the right budgets, if we just get the right people, we just get, we'll, we'll fix our society. We'll make things good. The problem is none of us have the ability to create it. So Nebuchadnezzar, what's keeping him up at night is he's trying to create a utopian vision with Babylon and this, this one world ruling empire and, and, it, and ultimately he knows it's not gonna work. But let me suggest to you that it's not wrong that he wants that. It's actually stitched within him by his creator that he wants that. The problem is what he's looking to to get it and that's his own power and the system of this world and the resources of this world. And that's why he can't sleep. You know, every human wants to know four basic things. And you could probably say more than this, but I'll just keep it simple. Origin, that's where did I come from. Meaning, that's why am I here. Morality, what's right and wrong. And lastly, destiny. Where am I going? What's gonna happen to me? Those are four questions every human being is asking. The world cannot answer those questions questions efficiently. They have answers, but they're not good ones. Here's what culture's telling you right now. They're telling you that you are basically a cosmic accident, a result of primordial soup that just happened to hit the jackpot, and now you, for some reason, have all these feelings, and, and but the, the, you know, you love your wife, but really it's just because you, you know, evolution told you you need to procreate, so that's really all it is, and the love that you have for people, that's really just about survival. It's just like, you know, we evolved to realize that we needed to survive. And so, so we need people to survive. So community is just baked into our evolutionary process. Oh, so meaningful. Isn't that great? Did you guys know you're just here because you evolved to be here? Isn't that great? Thank you, evolution. Who do we thank for that? I don't know. So the world wants to tell us that's our, our origin. The, the world wants to tell us that our highest meaning, our highest purpose in life is our own selfish pleasure to fully realize ourself, our true self, to do what we want, right? Disney's been telling us that for years. If Ariel could just get out of the ocean and grow legs, she'd be happy, right? Just realize her true destiny. Thank you, Disney. <laughs> and so we all think our dads are just these evil, oppressive dictators, right? Because they're asking us to do something. That's, that's the meaning the world wants us to have. Morality. What about morality? What's right and wrong? Well, whatever you feel like is right and wrong, right? Because you're God. You decide what feels right. If it feels right, then it's right. Your truth, my truth. Okay. Now, that's an answer. Is it a good one? <laughs> look, at our, look at our society. It's crumbling. There's a whole bunch of people over in Philadelphia that think it's right to break in and steal a bunch of iPhones. Is that right? Hey, why not? Their truth, whatever they feel, right? I don't think so. What about destiny? Who knows? You know, it depends on how spiritual you want to be. People get really spiritual at funerals and they get really secular at the bar. They're very secular at weddings. They're very spiritual at funerals. You know, 
hey, whatever, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to die, like, I'm going to have another drink. But then you're at a funeral, like, oh, he's in heaven, you know? I mean, all of a sudden, spirituality comes in when we borrow it from, from Christianity, when it's convenient for us. So the world has answers, but they're not good answers. What does the gospel have to say about these four things? The gospel says your origin is that you were created and sourced in God, a Trinitarian God who is a community, by the way. And so love isn't something you create. It's actually something that existed before you were made. That you were designed in, in a way that reflects a person. God's a person. And you were made for love, and you were made to love, but you were not made to create love. You were made to receive the love of God and then have it pour out through you like a conduit. That's what you were made for. You are intrinsically valuable. You're beautiful, not because of anything you've done, but because God made you to reflect him. Amen. And so you have value. Even if you're lost, no matter how much sin you've done, you have value. You're made in the image of God. That's your origin. Your source is in him. And what about meaning? What's my purpose? You exist to glorify God because God's glory is your ultimate joy. That's what you're made for. Anything short of that is going to be disappointing. You're missing the mark. You're not going to sleep at night. You were designed for a reason. Not to be the source of life, but to worship the source of life. You're not God. Isn't that great? That's the, most, that's the best news all day. I'm not God. Morality, what's right, what's wrong? God will tell you. It's, it's whatever is, is aligned with his nature. Sin isn't sin because God decided it's sin. Sin is sin because it's the opposite of God's nature. It's out of alignment with ultimate reality. It's twisted, it's perverted, it's death. Anyone agree? Sin is death. It kills. What about destiny? Well, let me tell you about your destiny. Your destiny is that you were headed for eternal hell, eternal separation from God. You were lost, dead in your trespasses and sins, but your destiny has been altered if you've believed in Christ because God intervened in that story and has given you, by faith, he's given you his perfect credit score and accredited full righteousness in you. Your destiny, if you've believed in Jesus, has changed from doom to eternal life fullness of life in Christ. Your destiny is that God is gonna create a utopian reality. It's coming. He's gonna give you a new body, a new eternal destiny, a new eternal reality, and that's all found because of what Jesus did and is doing and is gonna do. That's your destiny. Now, what do you think? Who has a better answer, the world or the gospel? Come on. You tell me that the world does not want that message? If you sell Christianity and you tell them it's just a bunch of moral decisions and saying no to a bunch of enjoyable things, they're never going to sign that. If, you, if, you, if your highest vision of Christianity is like, yeah, you don't get to do any fun stuff and you got to go to church with a bunch of weird people and, you know, not talking about you, other churches. <laughs> you're the best weird people and I'm part of weird people. If, you're, if your selling point for Christianity is a no rather than the ultimate yes, if your selling point for Christianity is denying the world rather than realizing the ultimate world, God's ultimate world, then people are gonna go, I don't want that. I just need you to understand that what Nebuchadnezzar, what's keeping him up at night is he wants something that only God can give him. How cool is it, by the way, that God spoke to, he, he chose to communicate the gospel, and in his vision, by the way, it's the gospel, the kingdom of God fully realized. How cool that God chose to communicate the gospel through a pagan Gentile king's dream. Getting ahead of myself here. Number two, we aren't trying to generate faith in people. We are rightly orienting faith in people. That's so important. It's so important. When you, when you tell someone the gospel, you're not trying to create faith in them. I just get them to believe no, 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 the, the problem isn't that they don't believe. The problem is that they believe the wrong thing. We are all people of faith. We all have faith in something. Your faith may be in yourself. Your may, faith may be in evolution. Your faith may be in, who, who knows? It's in something. Nebuchadnezzar's faith was in his, his, his wise men. What we need to do is we need to reorient people's faith to truth, to show people who their God, who their little case G God is they're worshiping so we can lead them to the uppercase God that they should be worshiping. Everybody's worshiping something. Everybody's bowing the knee to something or someone. 
Help the lost see that. Hey, that addiction that you have in your life, you know, you're, that, that's actually not just some scientific biological thing. That's part of it. But the other problem is you have a worship disorder. You've made methamphetamine your God. You have to dethrone that. And the only way you're going to dethrone that addiction is if you put someone else on the throne. I'm not saying there's not biological things happening there, but I'm saying if you get your worship right, God needs to be on the throne. Redirect your faith. Redirect it from your career, from your stuff, from your life, from your influence, from your family. Put it in the right place. That's what Jesus was trying to get these guys to do when they said, I'll follow you. He's like, great, put me on the throne. Make me the king of your kingdom. Number three, we'll end here. The gospel is not news about how to get to God It is news that God has come to you. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't trying to find God, was he? God found Nebuchadnezzar. And if you read the book, Nebuchadnezzar bows the knee. It's not until chapter four. First, he makes a statue, which is just a belligerent act of pride. Like, spoiler alert, chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm gonna make a big statue. We'll see about that big rock, right? And then chapter four, he gets humbled hard, right? There, that's, that's my summary of the book. Okay, anyways, the gospel's not news about how to get to God. It's news about how God has come to us. It's so important. God has penetrated the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. God has come into this world in the incarnation. He is bringing us to him. Don't make the mistake of telling people that the good news is that they need to do a bunch of good stuff so they can get to God. Amen. The good news is that God did a bunch of good stuff so he can get you to him. God came to this world. He's on a rescue mission. And we get on his shoulders up the hill by faith and faith alone. Trust and trust alone. So let me conclude. I just want to drive you guys to examine two things this week. First of all, I want you to see the Nebuchadnezzars around you. And what I mean by that is I want you to recognize that every day you're interfacing with lost people that are not yet saved. Lost people that know They've missed the mark that have the right questions you can answer and that even on a subconscious level are wholly dissatisfied with the answers they're getting in this world. Guarantee it. Don't look at people and go, I don't know how to get that guy to believe. I don't know how to get that guy to believe. They're already, they already want to know the truth. Give him the gospel. Give him the gospel. They're dying for it. See the Nebuchadnezzars around you and secondly, see the Nebuchadnezzar in you. Recognize that there is still a part of you that wants this world. There's still a part of you that is restless because it has not yet fully surrendered to God. And the answer to that, the key to that is not trying harder. The key to that is seeing reality. It's seeing God. In the New Testament, we learn that the key to repentance, that that, that God um, leads us to repentance with his goodness. When we see him accurately, we repent quickly. Keep believing the gospel. Recognize that there is still that Nebuchadnezzar in you. There's still that part of you that wants to sit on the throne of your own heart. And the way that you get rid of that is you keep putting Jesus back on by continuing to remind yourself that he rules the universe. Amen? I'll invite Ryan back up and I'll just pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for Daniel chapter two. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God that saves Lord, that you're a God that is faithful to pursue the lost. God, thank you that you have come into this world for the purpose of saving and rescuing us. And Lord, we pray that these things would just sink into our heart, Lord, as we come to your table right now. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.